um, yeah, it's, recorded, it's, right? it's all being recorded. I, I'd actually never talk to anyone on Skype without recording it in the background. <laughs> oh, that's just for that's evidence. Great. Yeah, hashtag <laughs> me too. You like, you like, you like Nixon, Alex. You just record everything there. Yeah, yeah. Just in case. Do, do you keep like different folders? One for your like wank bank, and one for your blackmail, and one for your like that's your own it. nervous episodes. Nixon is my spirit animal. Um, uh, mine too, but only because I worship at the altar of Roger Stone. <laughs> Dude, Roger Stone's tattoo is so badass. Yeah, it's it. His tattoo proves that he likes getting pegged, like Ralphie Cifaretto, because, um, you know, he has it on his back. Yeah, just uh, just to add for added detail, Alex's uh little podcast setup is next to a mirror, which I find kind of creepy. Is it? Well, like, like it's a bit like with the Good recording man. that everything I do on Skype, I also always have a mirror within close proximity of myself to keep tabs on my own self. So is this because like you're like Patrick Bateman, you're like fucking and looking is, in like yeah. texting. <laughs> but but except that I get off on podcasting, so you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, <clears throat> um, Anna, how would you I like? I don't know what's be... more narcissistic. <laughs> yeah, definitely podcasting. Hey there, welcome to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. Today we're talking to Anna Kachian about modern relationships, dating, narcissism, and alienation. If this sounds slightly offbeat for a politics podcast, don't worry, we get onto things like Russophobia, fascism, and anti-fascism a bit towards the end. If this is your first time with us, our starting point is that the period in which Western liberal democracy was held to be the final form of human government is now over. So what we try to do here is to chart what's emerging and what comes next. We alternate between episodes on ideas and ideology, concrete national politics, and cultural themes. So while our last episode was with Amber Lee Frost talking about the family and socialist feminism, the one before that was on Brazil. Okay, here's the episode. All right, hi everyone. I'm Alex Hochuli. We have Ben Fogel, who's I think in Berlin, uh, continuing his globetrotting. We have uh, George Hoare, who's in London, and our very special guest today, Anna Katchian, uh, who is in New York. Uh, Anna, I think, is a is a depressed writer and podcaster by her own description. Uh, her podcast, she's one half of, uh, or one third of Red Scare, um, which is actually really great, and we would endorse you listening to it after you listen to this one. Um, today, we're talking about modern relationships. So I'm going to start off with a, a quote from the great romantic Slavoj Žižek uh, to kind of set us off and set the scene. So if we try to imagine a whole, I'm not going to do the voice, by the way, if we try to imagine a wholly politically correct courtship, we get uncannily close to a formal market contract. The problem is that sexuality, power and violence are much more intimately intertwined than we may expect it, so that also elements of what is considered brutality can be sexualized, i.e. libidinally invested. After all, sadism and masochism are forms of sexual activity. As a result, sexuality purified of violence and power games can well end up getting desexualized. Um, so, as a starter, Anna, uh, is it the case that under neoliberalism, we've forgotten how to fuck? I didn't write that question. Someone else did. I'm just reading this. Um, you know, I can't speak for anybody else, but I, I suspect that I suspect that that's true. Um, as my co-host Dasha brilliantly said on, on Red Scare, 
um, neoliberalism has made it so that men uh, grow increasingly autistic and women grow increasingly uh, traumatized. So the original kind of uh, men are from Mars, uh, women are from Venus distinction, uh, the idea that there's like an inherent preverbal miscommunication between the sexes, I think, has been amplified by like digital platforms. Which is weird because, uh, I mean, the kind of one of the few bits of real progress that you could say over the past kind of 20, 30 years in the West has been a kind of a greater gender equality, I think. Uh, and yet they kind of the men and women seem further apart. So how do we explain that? Well, I think the difficulty, well, I, I, the central kind of contradiction of uh, of our time of like in terms of like gender roles is the fact that, yes, we we as progressives can all agree that we aspire to greater gender equality professionally and publicly. But the sexual arena and Zizek has said this and Camille Paglia has said this, among others, that in the sexual arena, there is no equality. There, uh, I think Zizek, I don't know if you were quoting this, the, the Mobius strip of sexual contracts. Was that where the quote was from? I think that's right. Yeah. Um there here's another even better quote i think it's better because it's uh, much more like uh cruel and to the point um the fact that the fact that should be accepted in all its brutality is the is the ultimate incompatibility of sexuality and human rights Mm. and i think that paglia had had also a very kind of spicy take on this and which was that you can't legislate sexual matters so um although there has been a greater kind of equalization in gender roles across the board in Western developed countries there, the sexual terrain still remains kind of like uncharted. And I think people don't know what to do with it. Mm. Well, I guess one way of discussing, thinking about it would be to think of kind of sexual relations as somehow sort of pre-political. Uh, and when people say, you know, don't kink shame, that's what they're kind of touching on, that you can't really judge these things because they're so intimately tied to your own impulses that you can't really judge them. They're not of the realm of, of kind of rational discussion. Um, and so I guess the question then is, is discussing dating as we're doing on this podcast, uh, is that kind of a frivolous topic of discussion for a political podcast? Um I guess on the the other hand, uh, people are kind of dating and having these questions much later into life than was in the past. Uh, people relationships are much less permanent, much more transient, and so you end up in a situation of dating probably much longer along the course of your life than you know thirty years ago. Uh, so yeah. does this make it a valuable topic for political discussion? Yeah, of course. I mean, I think like. Uh, Sexual relations are always in some sense political because we're talking about the kind of numero uno function of humanity, was, which is to perpetuate itself. Um, I know that there's a lot of people on the left who fall, not a lot, but there's a, a robust minority, let's say, of people who are like part of this anti-natalist camp who, you know, are so sick in the head that they actually believe that humans shouldn't reproduce, mm -hmm. that we should do kind of the moral thing. But certainly, I mean, when you talk about uh, the issue... Uh, of people kind of dating later in life, uh, cohabitating later in life, like that's a political question, right? Because we're talking about procreation. Mm -hmm. I, I, I think one of the things I noticed in, uh, I guess, left circles in uh, New York is that like kind of the normalization of kink, like there's now like a social network 
for like every type of kink imaginable and like fat life and all of these BDSM communities, but it's presented as sort of like a comfortable, safe identity as if it was like, you know, not transgressive as it was like, you know, we just go and live by the fireplace. Yeah. Isn't that like a delicious irony of, of, uh, the sexual revolution that all of these things that were kind of originally taboo and transgressive are now totally like neutered. Like you can really go to any shop in like dime square NYC and like buy like a fair trade organic dildo. And people are very upfront now about their kinks. People are very upfront, for example, about their consumption of like pornography to the point that like it has the adverse effect and that it makes all of this very like clinical and uninteresting. Yeah, I mean like there's also like this whole like thing. And I guess it's like a subgenre of like mid to late 2000s uh, vice era journalism which was uh you know like I'm a like professional sex worker. I work as a dom and I like piss on and beat the shit out of uh finance guys all day if I go home and live my normal life afterwards and that's praxis. I mean yeah the There's sex a, worker thing is no you go ahead well i mean i guess it does bring up a question which like we'll might discuss a little bit more in depth later on but i want to throw this in there already which is when we make that critique and i kind of agree with at least the observation that it's a bit odd these days that are we not wishing for a time which the mainstream was more repressed and then that we could be the alternative people on the outside practice you know it's a bit like wanting your speakeasy bar to be a real 1920 speakeasy bar under prohibition rather than the kind of farcical things that they are nowadays where you have speakeasy bars that everybody knows about yeah it's like um a cost like there's all these establishments now that are basically cosplaying uh, like as retro institutions right like you you can go to like a speakeasy bar or kind of like a rustic uh colorado style coffee shop or whatever and the whole thing is like profoundly embarrassing. It's like that Sky Ferreira song, Everything is Embarrassing. Like you walk through life and you're like, Jesus, I'm constantly experiencing secondhand embarrassment <laughs> chills. And, yeah, you know, I mean, it makes it that much worse that like you have friends and partners that you have to suffer through it with together. And both sides have to pretend that they don't notice kind of the embarrassment of the other side because to like mutually uh, acknowledge that would be even more embarrassing. Maybe that's yeah. why we're anxious all the time. It's just that we're cringing so deeply all the pro- all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, I, I remember in uh, Williamsburg, I always used to walk past it. And I didn't understand why, like, everyone just didn't commit suicide in this project. There was a Australian-owned, Australian-run and Australian-themed uh, coffee shop called Sweatshop, like, on the border with Williamsburg and Bed-Stuy. Anyway. <laughs> but they probably were, like, a sweatshop, like, like, you know, 60 years ago. And I was just like, okay. Is this yeah, why? Is this where your hatred of Australians comes from, Ben? Oh, it's it's symptomatic rather than a uh, <laughs> right. causal. Um, I so, think we we can all agree that we hate the French and the Australians, right? Yeah. So I like I like the Fra- I like the, the image of France that I have. I don't like the empirical French, but I like France as an idea. So right. maybe maybe to move things on from sort of ranking nations <laughs> worst worst to, to least worst. Um, so you know, be, going... <laughs> no, I said this <laughs> before, has... and I'll say again: the the French you at least have to have a begrudging respect for because they are such crypto racists and crypto fascists. Like they're so kind of uh, uh, openly so that you almost have to respect their commitment. They have like real skin in the game. Yeah, take, uh, take your hat off to. 
they're they're really committed. Um, but just just kind of taking it back a bit to this to this Zizek quote, and I think one of the the things which sort of resonates with me or resonated with me when Alex was reading that out is, yeah, I mean we have got in many ways a dating market now, and we have dating apps which um, measurement, evaluation, quantification. There's a lot of data which is going into these processes of sorting um, and matching, and it's obviously also um, big money. I mean, is is there is there any way to escape this, or are we, you know, should we just basically accept this is this is an efficiency that the market gives us? It saves us time. People are busy. It's a way to uh, meet people that we actually like sometimes, or even love. I mean, yeah, this is certainly true, and like, I won't discount the fact that, like, yes, people have met on dating apps or on the internet, and you know, by and large, like, as much as I kvetch about this. I've met many of my best friends just through like talking shit on Twitter. But at the same time, I think that that um, there is an escape and that's kind of becoming uh, a, a private citizen. I, I think um, Massimiliano Gioni, who was like the director of the New Museum, said this once in an in a article in New York Magazine way back that the only way to be like radical and transgressive th- these days is to be uh, boring and a little bit difficult. <laughs> yeah, I think I, I, th- I think especially the difficult thing because otherwise I think the normal fine, but then there's a certain acting out of of norm core. You know, it's kind of a performative norm coreism, which is also really cringy. Um, but it, it, certainly, yeah, the, but certainly mean, the point about I, difficulty I think is important. And I think if there's one sort of notion which our contemporary culture is very much against is that things be difficult. You know, that one should stick fervently to a principle like that's just seen as like or or that one should suffer any kind of inconvenience which in modern kind of techno capitalist parlance has been rebranded as inefficiency yeah yeah so the the social theorist adam greenfield talks about this the ideology of ease like your whole life is everything has to be easy if it's not it's not easy what you see increasingly is people having a lower and lower threshold for um, discomfort and inefficiency. And I actually think um, what what you were saying, going back to what you were saying earlier, the idea that dating apps and such save time because we are busy and it basically algorithmically uh, matches us to people who have maybe a statistically higher chance of being compatible with us. That's in some sense an illusion because the our busyness in, is an illusion. I mean, if you mm. think of our, our class of like uh, aspirational uh, creative millennials, i.e., I- podcasters, writers, artists, musicians, whatever. You um, made me want to kill myself right now. <laughs> I mean, we are all people who are in the business of manufacturing uh, tasks for ourselves, and I think that we've, um, in some sense, uh, turned to work to avoid the discomfort of uh, and the terror, the existential terror of interpersonal relationships. That is, yeah, I think there's are those two things different, though. I mean, is, is it on the one hand that making it easy is good for us? And then on the other hand, it may, does it reflect that we're kind of we're actually increasingly scared of each other and this impersonal and mar- and kind of market mediated approach to meeting people? It reduces the risk and it ge- keeps people at arm's length a bit a bit longer. Yeah, of course. And I think like Me Too, somebody said this on Twitter, and I really uh, appreciated the sentiment that Me Too fundamentally for all of its like, kind of uh, ambitious goals and progressive bona fides is basically a reactionary movement that is pushing back against 
kind of the frivolity of the sexual revolution because people want constraints and people want standards. Well, I think this is maybe a little bit of a tangent, but something uh, brought the thought to mind when you talked about the desire for ease, which is the notion of, of social acceleration, right? That thing that oh, things are always getting faster and that things are always on. And it's actually, it kind of, made, thinking about this made me uh, more convinced about the need for national holidays. And actually to be, people don't seem to be able to tolerate the idea that, for example, all the shops might be shut. And it's not just out of a desire to go shopping, but it's just that things must be always on and always happening. And the idea of a kind of national holiday or a Sunday where all the shops are closed and where you might go and meet people in a public square seems something which is difficult and uh, an obstacle to getting things done and to and to pursuing your tasks. And I think maybe it's a good argument. That's exactly a good argument for defending the notion of holidays where everything stops and where you might have a publicly shared moment. Yeah, of course. And I mean, it's difficult. Like you, you have this much less so in America, but in Europe, an example, like in Berlin, right, everything closes in London, everything closes at like 8pm or whatever on a Sunday. And people are sort of left to, to their own devices to like drink themselves under the table. Because, you know, there's that famous, right, Keynesian idea, I think it was the Keynesian idea that um, as labor is more and more automated, uh, people will have more leisure time and they will be free, more free to pursue their kind of hobbies and interests. And of ah. course, that, that that's exactly what didn't happen. People filled up that um, surplus leisure time with more work. Yeah, I think it's it's also that we're, we're quite puritanical in Britain. We're quite worried if we have free time, that's that's like idleness. That's a sin. You know, it leads to drink and, and dissolution. Um, we actually kind of like the like to work and, and keep busy because it's better than the alternative of uh, of just getting drunk and being amoral. Well, like I, I would say actually probably uh, I mean, in Britain that people are either uh, always drunk or always working. <laughs> it's sobriety and leisure is like, whoo, that's a bit of a, a void like we don't want to face. profoundly incompatible, yeah. I mean, I don't know. You guys remember the book that came out a couple of years ago that was kind of like very talked about probably in our circles called Inventing the Future. It was by um, mm-hmm. Nick Srinik. I, I don't know how to pronounce his name and Alex Williams. And yeah. I'm looking at it now. It's on my bookshelf. But it was basically a an attempt to uh, kind of identify, to codify neoliberalism as a political and cultural strategy. And it was interesting as as an expository work and that to that degree but they they also kind of tangentially uh fleshed out this idea of folk politics which is people kind of receding into their individual uh private lives and and kind of pitching community-based protest movements and they dismissed this this mode of operating as basically ineffectual and i think it has largely like in the era of massive like data harvesting digital platforms it has proven ineffectual politically but i think as a personal social stance it's wildly redeeming because that that's what's called for um with kind of the dating apps and stuff like i personally don't use dating apps for that reason because i think that they're corrosive and it's you know going back to what i was saying about me too being a reactionary movement uh I think people these days don't don't realize just how deeply uh, kind of damaging, harmful dating apps have been to to dating culture, especially to women. Hmm. Um, I was going to I mean, it's connected, but 
One other thing I noticed about uh, living in New York and uh, as someone from like kind of a different place in the world is that like the spontaneity of just hanging out with your friends is often lost to the requirements of work. And the same goes for dating. It's like you have to schedule like three weeks in advance if you want to see somebody. It's not like if you suddenly have some time, you can really call up somebody and say, hey, let's go to the bar. That's like that spontaneity of being able to hang out or encounter people like that. It's kind of lost. Everything has to be scheduled and ordered in advance. And you have to book people in advance. It's like it's I find that extremely stressful and depressing. It is. And because because the spontaneity has been discouraged because it's dried up, I think that's only amplified kind of like I said, the existing miscommunication between the sexes, because both sides know that the other side can cook up a perfectly reasonable, sensible excuse for why the spontaneous meeting can't occur. Yeah, and I mean, it's also like, especially, I find in like New York, uh, having been on many dates in New York, there's also like... This don't brag, man, don't brag, it's not nice. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not brag, it's just Is like, there something oh. to brag about? It's actually really depressing. <laughs> trust me, trust me, this is nothing to brag about. Like, you would want to go on less dates. Dates are not a good thing in this case. It's like, um, this. there's always like this weird distance in that uh, people both know kind of why they're there, but they can't admit it. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So one thing that I wanted to come on to, which is related to this question of folk politics, and I'm glad you raised that, because, um, I mean, just as a personal anecdote, a personal political anecdote, I used to be much more of an accelerationist than I am now. Um, mm-hmm. And actually, there's this book, Social Acceleration, by, by a German theorist, Hartmut Rosa, which rather convinced me that if there's things that you want to defend in modernity, such as personal and political autonomy, then we actually have to decelerate in certain aspects, uh, many of which are kind of things that you have already mentioned in terms of being always on, about setting yourself more and more tasks, always multitasking, um, and actually have time to reflect and think is actually quite important precisely to be if we want to be as modern as possible, we have to kind of decelerate, which is a kind of seemingly paradoxical notion. But as a kind of instinctive progressive, I guess it, it does sort of jar a little bit to be thinking these things. So I guess my question is, are we becoming more conservative in general? And is our approach to relationships maybe just one aspect of this? Yeah, I think that there is a tendency um, toward conservatism. I mean, I, I think Angela Nagel made this point very kind of astutely and succinctly in Kill All Normies. Um, and she got pretty much pilloried and crucified for it. Um, and uh, her point... Angela, she's been on the podcast. Yeah. Sh- shout out to Angela, friend of the pod. Um, <laughs> but um, she, you know, her point, right, was that the the modern alt-right cannot exist without the modern online left, that they're mirror images of each other. And you can extrapolate that analogy to the way that kind of uh, the fringe elements of like male and female discourse operate on the internet. Like you have on one hand, um, the these incel guys that were like in the news recently and kind of their uh, uh reluctant troubadour jo- Jordan Peterson, who was <laughs> advocating for like the sexual redistribution of women in the absence of any other kind of political re- redistributions, which would benefit everybody equally which I thought was an interesting point because these people are kind of like bald faced libertarians in all respects, except when it comes to sexuality there, you know, everybody is appointed a girlfriend according to his need. And then on the other hand, you have kind of the putatively progressive 
uh, wings of, of leftist and liberal feminism, um, which I, is on the face of things concerned with, uh, you know, seeking solidarity with their sisters and uh, seeking justice for uh, sexual abuses, both of which are, I think, noble pursuits. But what they're really interested in, um, in the most kind of extreme sense, is getting revenge against individual men in the guise of like avenging the patriarchy. So they're basically like, if you think of like the, the kind of like misandrist, like kill all men, male tears, mugs, feminists, they are merely the mirror image of incel men. Yeah. I mean, I guess I don't know where to go from that. (laughs) Um, I guess it does leave us in a situation where we're obviously unsure of what social norms should be uh that you know there's a general uh, progressive consensus that people should be that we should be tolerant and people should be allowed to do what they want to do um but without any serious ethical undergirding to that and i guess that's why you see so much grappling for new forms of rules or even kind of you know punitive responses like this person has overstepped the boundaries we need to punish them and publicly flog them because that's the only way of establishing what a potential norm could be um yeah. and I, I guess I, I, one thing which i was thinking the other day is that it seemed on the one hand i feel like social liberalism hasn't gone far enough we could be more tolerant we could be more liberal at the same time, social liberals as a distinct political grouping have gone too far. They've overreached. Would you right. agree with that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, Zizek's point was was very correct that like as as sexual relations have become more automated and transactionalized, what happens is that kind of the original tacit unspoken power asymmetries are maybe. Uh, minimized but there but there arise more other different imbalances or asymmetries that are that are part and parcel of uh turning sex into a contractual agreement does that make sense yeah i think that's Should i think I that's well i think that, i think that's right i think that it, it is a kind of lib, yeah recourse to liberal contractualism as the only uh because of the lack of a kind of an ethical order, it's it's kind of replacing ethics with rules, with with hard yeah, with kind of contracts. It's safe, isn't it? It's um, you know, it gets rid of any any risk. The more contractual and the more right. the clearer but, it is. But this it, is it, a very kind of material question because, um, you know, I I think what's going on is that we're in the we're truly in the midst of like a paradigm shift in gen in gender roles and nobody knows what to do how to proceed and it's very clear that politically I think the the political agenda is very obvious you know it, women deserve equal representation as political subjects whether that means that they have an equal right to vote or operate machinery or whatever or earn a uh, an equal wage to men. But on the other hand, what we're talking about in the terrain of sexuality is kind of more of a cultural or or sociological imbalance that, that is much less easy to grapple with. I mean, for example, the big question now with, with all these kind of um, uh, online media and alt lit shakeups that we see is uh, how do you deal with, men mistreating women when a crime hasn't occurred when mm-hmm. the guy when the guy is is guilty basically of being like a shitty date or a shitty boyfriend 
Yeah. Yeah. There's been some high profile examples of this. Yeah. I mean, just I, I think maybe a lot of what you of, of maybe where we're going sounds quite bleak and uncompromising. Um, I mean, is, is there any hope for an idea of something approaching love under neoliberalism? I mean, is there any reasons why? listeners and, and also I guess Ben in, in Berlin as well should should be uh, you know should be hopeful. I mean sure on an individual case by case basis absolutely it's not like a cut and dry binary but you have to be very conscientious and you have to be kind of very uh, aware of what you hope to accomplish and you have to nurture I mean love is something that has to be nurtured you have to work for it and that means, you know, unfortunately for us, uh, parlaying some of the energies that we devote to uh, to work into uh, the realm of interpersonal relations. Is if, that... if that's what you want. Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's that's the big risk, risk, uh, constraint, isn't it, though, that we we don't have time <laughs> for, for love and and work. And, yeah. you know, you've, you've we... got to eat. You've got to pay rent. So. Well, I mean, I guess it, it also it ties into a question which has uh, broader social and political implications, which is the notion of, of commitment and commitment as being true freedom. Uh, like, you know, can refer to Sartre here or whoever, um, which is that which relates to this question of working on a relationship that you have to grow to love someone. And that runs rel- pretty contrary to the notion that. Well, one, an app can engineer this for you and that it'll be instantaneous. Uh, and that secondly, that you might have to ride out some difficult bits and that you have to work through that and actually commit to something on principle and see that through rather than just expecting things to work out. And if they don't work out, it means that it's not meant to be somehow the universe has determined this to be to be wrong for you. Um, can I just jump in here quickly? Go for it. Uh, I was going to say, connecting this discussion of like love is work with instant gratification and this paradigm shift that Anna refu- I, refu- I referred to earlier, if I remember correctly, uh, I think this is about mid to late 2000s, in terms of like what like alt lit or whatever it was called, like sort of was cool in terms of writing, was basically to refer to how shitty you were at relationships. It was like a whole subgenre of like I'm emotionally dead. I can't really feel anything despite being, despite like sleeping or being with somebody, which seems to have like been a thing before dating apps. But now with dating apps, are supposed to cure the sort of like make things easier. But I see something like basically people are already afraid of committing to something, which makes them feel vulnerable or shows vulnerability. Mm-hmm. And I think this uh, this goes back even before dating apps. It's been a thing about like being vulnerable is seen as lame. It's just like you know, like who writes a love letter anymore? I mean, we do all the time in text messages, but there's, but this is like the crazy thing that like now all of our communiques are basically recorded. They exist in some kind of online archive, which is a terrifying thing because uh, I think a lot, you know, a a lot of the stuff depends. It thrives basically on uh the the absence of absolutes and the presence of ambiguity. Well, I yeah, think I mean, the Ben, your point about like, vulnerability is actually kind of interesting because, on the one hand, we all flaunt vulnerability, or not necessarily us individually, but I mean, there, there's a culture in which you are meant to flaunt your vulnerability, right? You're meant to break down and cry and repent. It, uh, it's a performance of vulnerability. It's a performance of vulnerability, but genuinely being vulnerable is not a defensive posture, whereas the display of vulnerability, the performative vulnerability, is a defensive mechanism, isn't it? 
Right. It, that's very well said. Yeah. And I think like, um, I mean, you see this now basically um, with uh, all of these like Twitter threads disclosing some or other sexual trauma that was not criminal. Um, and I think, yeah, now I, I'm very, one of the things that's like very sad for me is the death of Mark Fisher, because I think like I would, I'm very curious to what he would have to say mm. about the fact that we've ki- kind of officially moved on from an ironic to po- to post ironic moment in the span of like maybe one or two decades. So now we we do live in this atmosphere of, of post irony where it's no longer cool to be kind of emo and ironic mm-hmm. and everybody is bearing their soul on the internet but nobody is actually willing to be vulnerable in private. I think that's absolutely right. And I think I wanted, this would bring us on really nicely to a topic that you've written about and talk a lot about, which is the notion of narcissism. And would you see, I guess, uh, to put the question pointedly, both the ironic culture and the post-ironic culture, both as facets of a narcissistic culture, or is it something different? Um, How do you mean? Well, I guess the... The irony is a sort of a defensiveness, right? Um, And post-irony in the forms of, you know, flaunting one's vulnerability, as we've discussed, both are inwardly focused. And, you know, it's um, it's not narcissism in the sense of, wow, I'm really fucking great. How awesome am I? But just an inward an inward turn right it's it's the the kind of fall of public man and so on um so i guess is is post irony also a facet of that um i i i would say so i mean i have to think of it uh, think about it but i'm sh- i mean i'm certain it is uh i i think of narcissism when you think about it the way that it's been um diagnosed i think the last psychiatrist had a really great bit about this bit he that he played out on his blog over many posts um that that narcissism the way that it's uh, diagnosed by the psychiatric community is basically it uh, it provides a giant elaborate defense mechanism for everybody who suffers from a touch of narcissism to the degree that um we are told that that narcissism is is grandiosity that it's egomania that it's extreme self-love when of course it's it's not it's not necessarily positive self-preoccupation. It's self-preoccupation in the absolute. So yeah. accompanied also by feelings of like extreme alienation and self-loathing and paranoid ideations that uh, people are conspiring against you and that the world is hostile when it's really indifferent. And I, like a lot of people that you see like screaming into the void and being like uh, ostensibly like vulnerable online are people who uh, refuse to accept help from people in private life. I mean, there's the joke that, um, you know, so many, so many things that we air out on social media could have been a private note, could have been an email. Mm. Like you even, you even think about the standard of people kind of praising, lauding their friends on the internet for some accomplishment. Right. Um, to me, to me, public praise is akin to like a public apology in the sense that it's meaningless. It's like a, a, a rat race to, to obtain like clout or social capital. Because, you know, if you really wanted to be earnest with somebody, whether that be like praiseworthy or contrite, you would write them a private note or I, call yeah, them up. I, he- I heard a really interesting explanation of, of why people have moved to kind of to th- these forms of, um, yeah, like why publicly praise a friend of yours it, it is quite a strange idea but it was linking it to basically the growing inequality and in, particularly in american society that basically people have 
internalized this and and um now are basically even in things which previously would have been private that now there's um something to be gained from from sort of trying to get a bit higher up in the in the status hierarchy and and always essentially competing even in things which used to be i don't know privatized and, and non non-competitive i think right. for instance i think for instance like one of the things I've noticed is like, uh, and I'm, I'm like, I have a lot of friends who are like much older than me, particularly in South Africa, and we're not really on social media like that. Uh, and there's this whole thing. It's like when you really with a friend and really want to show love, a lot of it, like for younger people, it really has to be like on Instagram stories. But if you're like really having a very intimate, uh, you know, like this deep evening and conversation with somebody. The, like if you is the urge to whip out your phone and record it seems kind of like obscene yeah well I yeah think- i agree but it comes down to like private practice like you have to make a commitment before you make a commitment to anybody else you must make a commitment to yourself that you will behave in a way that you you will basically uh behave in a way that that answers your sense of like communitarian duty so if that means like not whipping your phone out at dinner uh, to kind of like moderate discomfort, then you, that's the way that you have to proceed. Hmm. It's kind yeah. of that versus the need to, you know, to build to build a brand, which includes being human, relatable, friendly, and obviously all of those things um, publicly. And, and, also, yeah, and it also fits into your relationships because, like, part of the thing about like you know, uh, you know, these sort of in- uncertain encounters that we have with people romantically interested in is to demonstrate we actually have a fulfilling life without them. Right, exactly. And that, I mean, that's the game. That's the game. I mean, it, that's historically been the game, uh, I think, which is natural and, and normal is like uh, pretending you're not as invested in some in somebody as you really are. And like both sides are playing the game. And eventually, if it works out, it, you reach a mutual agreement. If it doesn't, you part ways. I mean, that's also all all par for the course. But I think now we're experiencing uh because we have to think of these things i think there's there's kind of like a leftist notion that progress that's probably an american notion because uh, i've noticed one thing i've noticed american about american culture is that it's it's absolutely unable to stomach moral ambiguity which is or nuance which is kind of uh different from european or russian culture or whatever but now i think the 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 situation we face is one where women have entered the workplace in mass and they are even though they're compensated less on average right they're equal players in the workplace so the old role of a man let's say being like a patriarch and a provider is is completely eroded and that's by and large it's a good thing because we don't actually want to go back to the way things were nobody actually wants to be like barefoot and pregnant in the kitchen but on the other hand men now don't know how they should behave and neither do women. And and that's because women and men are, are now directly competing with each other in the labor market. So just to kind of link some of this stuff a bit, maybe more explicitly to, to, to politics, although obviously all this stuff is kind of, is, is politicized anyway. I'm um, so somebody whose work you, you know, you talk about quite a lot, Camille, Paglia she's she's quite um uncertain says often in quite uncertain terms that what masquerades as feminism currently is just packaging up a load of personal neuroses and and individual grievances um I guess so maybe the question from all of this is how do we how do we get beyond 
kind of this this critique of of some current feminists and and start to build something a bit better i mean following on from maybe some of the because i think it's been quite a, a critical discussion in some ways we've identified some of the negative stuff is there a is there a positive dialectical move here in terms of feminism yeah in terms of i guess how does how does all of this diagnosis maybe lead to um some prescriptions perhaps feminists i mean I mean, like, I think the I think the um, prescription for political action is actually for, for all of the, the the kind of spirited debate about it is is actually um, fairly straightforward. We keep fighting for equal rights for women, for their access, for for easy, affordable access to health care, abortion, et cetera. But as but as far as the the interpersonal realm is concerned, I don't think there is any easy prescription. I, mm. I mean, I'm not clairvoyant. I've thought about this. I think, like, I agree with you that we should move past critique and into prescription, but it's very difficult to to even think about how how things uh, could proceed in the future. What what is I think patently obvious now is that women are are equally capable of being narcissists as men. Mm. Well, I I'm, think it is. I'm it kind does, of hoping you'd have a, a, I mean, a sort of a very do, simple. I mean, we, we're living in the post-Lena Dunham era. I think that's patently obvious. Yeah, and I think I mean one one thing that that's very difficult to to uh, express to anybody, which is often like build. You know, I get I often get a lot of flack for you know victim shaming or victim blaming. Is that a lot of what passes for political discourse right now is really the politicizing of personal grievance. I think there's something interesting in the personal grievance aspect, and it also relates to what we were talking a little bit earlier about uh, flaunting one's vulnerability, uh, as well as, you know, congratulating friends in public, as well as flaunting your own um, traumas, which is there's an element of self-dramatization in there that I always think is quite relevant, or at least it's something that it's an aspect of it that strikes me quite strongly. Turning in unpleasant, but relatively quotidian situations into a big drama, something that, you know, you can hear the strings playing in the background. Um, and the I think tiny we'll, violin. The tiny violin, except it's a whole orchestra. You know, in, in the person's head, it's a whole fucking orchestra. Uh, and you, I guess you, you because you want to feel like the universe cares, that this is a big cinematic moment, uh, which kind of, I don't know, I, 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 I have a difficulty trying to understand what that means in a context which we also know that people are very cynical, um, very contractual, which is all the stuff which runs against the romance. This is all a big prelude uh, to get us talking about Lana Del Rey. <laughs> um, <laughs> because I think she's the last romantic of our times. Uh, and I think the appeal that she has is in part this kind of grand romance, grand emotion, which is something which isn't very common or popular or, or respected in our contemporary culture. Right. But, I mean, you, yeah. you took the words right out of my mouth. Yeah. But it's weird I, because because you also have this you have this self-dramatization, which is kind of pathetic and tawdry at the same time as a desire for a real sort of genuine drama, genuine romance, things that really matter that you might sacrifice something for. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, before we get to Lana, I mean, I would just like to point out that um, as far as, you know, narcissism goes, the, I think that the, the reason that you have so many people kind of offloading, crowdsourcing their private pain and vulnerability on the Internet is that in, in a classic narcissist move, we want um, the uh, we want sympathy and attention without uh, kind of 
subordinating our wills to other people without mm. uh, the the kind of unpleasant or uncomfortable effects of that, which is that um, if you if you are are vulnerable with people in private, it is in fact a social contract and you also owe them, you have a duty and an obligation to them as well. And we, we want kind of all of the catharsis without the obligation now. I think that's very, very well put actually, because it's, it is that question of, of commitment that we were discussing earlier, which you need that, um, well, you know, you have the banality of it, I guess the banality of, of commitment, uh, at the same time, as I mean, or at least the, the the kind of ideal, I guess, that we're, we're discussing is something which involves commitment and subordinating your will to the other, at the same time as also having perhaps something a little bit grander. Uh, right, and, and and what the feminist discourse neglects, in a nutshell, is that you know maybe we can paint men in broad strokes as like assholes and narcissists and patriarchs, but in our private dealings as women with men in heterosexual relations and in homosexual ones, you owe some sort of level of accountability to the other person. And in an online sphere, there's absolutely uh, no obligation on accountability uh, to accountability. You can just kind of spout off. But I think Lana, um, there's a really great quote from, from, my favorite pop star of all time, Amy Winehouse. Um, R.I.P. Yeah, and I think Lana has really taken over, kind of taken the reins of of Amy Winehouse in a way. Um, but uh, I think Amy was asked in an interview about modern uh, versus kind of fifties uh, and sixties pop music, and she said she put it really beautifully. I'm like obviously paraphrasing here, but um, you know, she said like I identify with kind of the the love songs of the 50s and 60s particularly from female vocalists because the they kind of uh they were this plaintive expression of need i want you i need you i love you i depend on you and if you look at pop songs these days especially the ones that are marketed for women like uh from beyonce or ariana grande or selena gomez or rihanna the the message that you get is i'm a girl boss I'm like stacking paper. I don't need you. And that's patently not true because, you know, what the Me Too movement is about in a nutshell. For, um, and I do believe I've said this before. I do believe that kind of the 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 surface level, uh, its surface level um, aim of bringing sexual predators to justice is a noble one. But really, women, what women are groaningly, miserably angry about is that men are indifferent they're not hostile they don't protect you anymore as jenny holzer said if they ever did i think yeah that's right and i think that that the yearning for that is something that comes through very strongly in lana del rey's lyrics for example right right um yeah certainly i mean you know if you look at this uh, like i think this is from her latest album if you look at the song cherry which is like the song that i have on repeat all the time it's you know it's so freudian and sexual cherry um she she compares true love to being kind of like in being lined up in front of a firing squad <laughs> she compares it to being against the wall and i think that when you're in the in your feelings which is another in my feelings another great lana song um it's that's that's what it feels like right that there are no alternatives <laughs> 
But yeah, I guess then maybe that brings us on to the question, is this a sort of displaced longing, right? That this is a longing which belongs maybe not necessarily to intimate romantic relationships because at the end of the day, people are still capable of that. I don't think our the contemporary culture has corroded that to such an extent, but that perhaps there's a more of a longing for genuine public emotion, grand emotions, things to actually care about, maybe ideology or, you know, communism um, would be my answer, but, you know, I don't want to be too crude about a, it. Kind of a great project that you can uh, express your your love for and then go to the firing line for. And that you might be able to submit yourself to, something to believe in, all this kind of stuff. Yeah, and I think that that, that, that was what was going on kind of in the Soviet Union in the heyday of uh, Bolshevism and, you know, later with the with the rise of constructivism, they were trying to um, create kind of a monumental aesthetic program that people could be uh, moved and heartened by. And you see this in America, too, with kind of the golden age of cinema and the golden age of music and all these things. I mean, I think these things are politically moving precisely because they were personally moving. And I guess if if that's displaced onto um, personal relationships, that's quite a lot to expect. Um, <laughs> one one other person or a very small number of, the, of, of people individually to uh, to to kind of give you in in replacement for what was previously a social project. Mm-hmm. And I think I mean, I th- can you can you clarify that for me for a minute? Yeah, I mean, I guess the. I mean, I can't remember whose point this is because it's not it's not mine and I shouldn't claim it to be mine when it's when it's not but the idea that if you if you don't have anything else to invest your hopes and your your dreams in in society or, or the, the construction is that, you know, you can achieve fulfillment only through interpersonal relationships and specifically, you know, romantic ones. And that's how you find your soulmate and find completion. Forget about a wider social project. Then you're going to be it's, it's quite likely that you're going to be disappointed because um, one other person is is expected to do quite a lot to complete you and offer you kind of all these various things from intellectual fulfillment to, to friendship and all these other things. Right. So, I love... think that was um, that was a great point that Quentin Crisp, who everybody should read, made um, that kind of the animating force of human nature is to foist responsibility for your life onto someone else. I mean, it's a tightrope. It's a balance. Right. But now what you see I think that there's something kind of more nobler in in the message uh, advanced by people like Amy Winehouse and Lana Del Rey that you seek some sort of solace or redemption in romantic love because now that individualism has been completely parlayed into work and self-actualization in a professionalized marketplace, which has found which has left everybody feeling completely alone and miserable and siloed. Yeah, I think the, the 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 kind of the glorification of one's own personal brand has kind of replaced the tacit progressivism, which I guess could be called Americanism, at least in the United States. But there are, you know, kind of maybe variations of it elsewhere, like across the West, I guess. Um, but, you know, the, some sort of public ideology which coheres uh, and make and gives a link between one's public experience and one's own private life uh, and and some sense of tell us about where society is heading um, and of course you get you know you get kind of uh, you know more radical versions of that in in communism and socialism uh, you also get a kind of more despairing version in in conservatism you know and trying to hold hold back the flood you know standing athwart history and yelling stop um, mm-hmm. but I guess 
in the absence of that, yeah, you look, you start looking for it in in other sort of places. I think one thing that kind of brings to mind uh, is that what the one kind of big emotion that can be drawn out of people or that comes from individuals, from liberals especially today, is the fear of fascism. Like that's the big grand public thing that we can tie into. We need to stop some sort of, you know, great reaction, some great disaster. Um, we, um, we say that right now as we <laughs> talking all week about incoming fascism in Bristol, which is actually... Well, here it's a, a genuine um, genuine fear. Um, my fears are, are real. They're not like the fake ones <laughs> <laughs> elsewhere. Like but but don't you think kind of the leftist and liberal preoccupation with fascism is a little bit overblown, especially... Well, that's precisely in... my point. That's Yeah, that is exactly my point. And Sorry. I think, you know, there's there's this whole like idea that, right, like uh, I've seen so many headlines to the effect of like, you know, uh, the the alt-right has been completely like brought to its knees by the Antifa movement. And that's not the case at all. The alt-right was was basically it dissolved because of uh, infighting and because it was never a coherent movement to begin with, much like Me Too, and because uh, the kind of major uh, payment uh, processors refuse to host these people. It has nothing. It yeah. has nothing to do. Like you know, there's this idea that you know, twelve alt right guys met with a thousand antifa protesters in the nation's capital, and it's it's not that they were humbled by the sheer numbers of of progressives coming out uh, to challenge them. It's that they were a fringe movement to begin with. Mm. Well, totally. And I think something that we've discussed on this podcast before, and I, I suspect we might all be in agreement about it, but that a lot of right-wing populism that has emerged in the past 10 years is a sort of return of the repressed. It is a desire for politics, which has been suppressed by centrist neoliberalism, um, you know, the kind of preclusion of politics and, you know, the fact that you can't call out your enemy, you know, every, every, everything has to be wrapped up in, in a consensual framework. And so then right. that gets expressed out in kind of more violent reactionary or racist forms. Um, and so the repetition of liberal prescriptions of more consensus, let's all get along, let's let the experts get on with ruling only. Yeah, yeah the, the bipartisan, problem. like reaching across the aisle. Exactly. Party line. Yeah. Um, so uh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I guess, I guess in, you know, I'm trying to kind of double back again to the kind of to the to the fear of fascism that because maybe liberals feel that that kind of consensual form of politics is so insubstantial that the only thing they have to really cling on to as a motivating factor, as a legitimating factor for themselves is to call to shout about impending fascism, impending doom of some sort, which is the great big dramatic public thing that's going to happen. Yeah, I mean, it's it's totally a boogeyman because the, the real doom is going to come from their internecine warfare and also the onward march of like massive digital platforms. That's what we have to fear is is kind of the total monopoly power of technology and the internal strife that these communities face. I mean, right now, if you look at the left right now, at least the sad thing is that there are a lot of people who are on the left who are involved in good faith organizational efforts all across the globe. But the kind of forward facing PR arm of the left are people on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and such. And these people 
are are basically now in the business of calling out other leftists for being fascists. It's <laughs> like this roundabout, this circle jerk. It's completely I mean, it's cannibalistic. Like, it, 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 it's like, you know, this... I mean, I'm going to share a really stupid Twitter experience today. Like, somebody uh, from South Africa, actually, where I'm from, uh, like, uh, when I was, like, pointing, pointing out that... Um, Weirdly, in Brazil, a lot of people who would be like Hillary voters, like members of the resistance types, like professional upper-class types, are considering or at least probably going to vote for a actual fascist in the name of the lesser evil. Um, somebody was like, but, you know, like, of course, like, you know, like, you know, white liberals are always terrible. They're like, also the white left, they don't like to vote for people that are not like them, they don't look like them. I was just trying to think. I've actually never met somebody on the left uh, who, in the United States, who would even consider voting for Trump. Like this you, is like an imaginary imaginary cat category that suddenly has perseverance, but it's useful to a narrative. So like suddenly you have like you know the rarely racist white leftist, which uh, would consider voting for Trump. And even if like there are racist white leftists, because there's going to be racist with any democratic category, like the idea of that type of thing doesn't exist. But yet it serves a narrative. Which was originally from liberals, but now it's being promoted by the left as it's convenient. What do you mean? The idea that that um, Trump's voter base is more robust than it is? Well, no, the idea that like there's a white imaginary category of white leftist who would consider voting for Trump. Out of sex. Oh, right, right. I mean, there's you saw this like in kind of in in the um, kind of on the eve of the and the wind up to the the presidential election you there was this whole category of media feminists who are basically saying well you know the the bernie bros were red-pilled and (laughs) have now turned into like trump like maga guys this this was really emerged in europe in the past couple of years as well with with a sort of completely fictitious and fantastical supposed red brown alliance Right. Um, where... um, there's like, you know, like the, like the red brown, the closest to a red brown alliance you can get in terms of like actual left stuff is if you ever go to the Counterpunch website, there's always some really fringe articles there. But like in terms of any real organization uh, counter- consisting in high alliance with fascism, no, I mean, that, that's just unimaginable. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I agree. I think there's like no data, no evidence. But it's a useful narrative. So like if you have this whole category of people uh, who somehow get like Twitter points of saying that Jacobin is proto-fascist but social democracy, and they always can go red brown. Right. Yeah, I remember um, when when Connor Kilpatrick uh, wrote the the article about um, like a uh, child rearing in 2018 it was kind of an anti anti natalist argument. Topic of our last yeah. episode, actually. Oh, really? Had, yeah. Um, we had Amber on to talk. Oh, about. right. Oh, great. I'm going to give that a listen. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, th- there was a massive pylon and nothing that he said was really that controversial. He was being perfectly reasonable. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I guess the, the liberal program is ever further alienation. And so don't trust liberals. They will betray you and eventually go fascist. Well, I mean, this is a scary thing. And I think on one in one hand, I, it goes without saying it does not bear repeating. Um, the the idea that the the left is kind of the opponent of neoliberalism is kind of true on the face of things, but everybody on on the left, including myself, I mean, we're all guilty as charged. We have been kind of infected by neoliberal ideology to the degree that we can only think of things from the point of our individual interests. There is no 
the the idea of like reaching across the aisle and a bipartisan consensus is about basically uh what is it like um coming together with people who you fundamentally disagree with uh to promote kind of the lesser evil alternative, but there's no sense of, there really is no sense of coming together in favor of mutual class or economic interests. And uh, while kind of putting aside your identitarian differences. Well, liberals love to talk about change while at the same time militating against any possible real change. Um, and it's like that line from, uh, from the leopard, which is, uh, which is that you know we we need, we need to change so that everything may stay the same and that i think is the basic prop- proposition of a lot of liberalism and that includes unfortunately s- certain sections of the left mm-hmm. and i i'm i mean i'm very glad that you bring up this um point about change because that is kind of the central uh uh animus of the narcissistic personality which i think christopher lash said first and tlp said said even better years you know decades down the line that um narcissism is sort of the generational pathology of our age like hysteria let's say was um in freud's day and i think it's it's completely not a facile facile analogy to say that the uh liberal is just a handy political euphemism for narcissist because the, the i mean really no joke no lulls because the 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 kind of the narcissist is poised against change which is which is what makes them kind of su- such a ideal candidate as as lash says for internal interminable psychoanalysis well i think that's a lovely loop back and a, maybe a great place to stop um because that just resumes it all very nicely and it's good to kick the liberals right at the end all right that's it for now if you've liked what you've heard do tell your friends and share alpha bunga bunga on your favorite social network we're back in two weeks talking to alex gurovich about douchebag entrepreneurs and why these silicon valley types are actually quite dangerous figures also coming up over the next month we have duterte's murderous regime in the philippines nervous states and political mistrust with will davis and the link between liberalism and fascism with Ishailanda. As always, get in touch. If you think there's this big thing going off in Micronesia or Central Africa that we need to discuss, then tell us. Okay, till next time. Catch you later. Bye-bye. <laughs>